This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast, or maybe I should call it the Canadian Macro Investor today because I have a special guest, um, Dan Foch, that uh, people have heard with the episode we did not too long ago on commercial real estate, who's stepping in for Braden today because Braden had, uh, you know, an unfortunate situation happen, but uh, he'll be back next week for his regular episode, so not to worry. Dan, how are you doing? Fantastic. I'm excited for a little macro. So you're probably my favorite uh, favorite person to talk to about macro. So this is going to be a good one. Yeah, likewise. I mean, uh, too bad we didn't have that much time during the TCI uh, meetup in Toronto. It was kind of hectic. You had to drive back a couple hours and uh, me and my back issues, but uh, we get the chance to do it again today and we'll get started with, um, well, I guess we'll do a mix of news that are kind of macro related and then we'll talk about, uh, you know, base effects, inflation. We'll also talk about government bond yields. You'll chime into with uh, the effects on real estate because I'm sure a lot of people are interested with your take on just the Canadian real estate market as a whole. Um, how it's going yeah. and the macro impacts of that. So that work with you? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so like I mentioned, so we'll start off with some news. So Fitch, uh, last week, news came out that Fitch downgraded the U.S. debt. And we also had news today that Moody's downgraded 10 U.S. banks. So the rating agency Fitch downgraded long-term U.S. debt from AAA to AA+, and placed a stable outlook on the new rating. For those not aware, essentially, if there's like a stable outlook, it means they're not looking at downgrading anytime soon, but they'll sometimes also put a watch or a unstable outlook. There's different terms they use, but basically, or they'll say, you know, it might be under review. That's just because they are debating whether they are downgrading or not. And to touch on the Moody's downgrade, so they downgraded 10 important U.S. banks. However, none of them were GSIB banks, so globally systematically important banks. Uh, but still, it was was pretty significant. There's some pretty large banks that were downgraded, but there is one GSIB bank uh, that was put under review, and that is BNY Mellon. It's the only GSIB that kind of made the list here. There's also some other large banks that are under review that could potentially see their rating downgraded. Now, uh, did you? I'm assuming we were talking, so you saw that earlier today. Any kind of initial thoughts on that and I'll kind of break it down a bit more especially the US debt. Yeah, from my perspective I think it's just more bad news. Like it's just at what point do we get to the straw that breaks the camel's back um and we end up seeing, you know, I I'm not super well versed on the equity side but like the market's been I think remarkably strong and and I think that that controls a lot of and dictates a lot of the consumer sentiment, which trickles into what we see on the real estate side. But, you know, as you and I discussed in our most recent commercial real estate episode, the crossover, the two part. And, um, as we discuss a lot on our, our show, um, you know, that, that consumer sentiment is really what's going to continue to drive. And as long as people's inflation expectations are, capped and as long as their inflations or their growth expectations um are positive then you know the downside in the market the downside scenario in the market is a big question mark it can change very quickly based on a piece of news and this or or you know the sum of all parts of a uh, a lot of pieces of news and this kind of is one of those ones that goes in a more bearish direction right 
Yeah, exactly. And from my perspective, I mean, I do agree with you to some extent. And I'll say, I'll just give an overview of what Fitch actually stated for the reason for the downgrade. And then I'll give my thoughts. But uh, the first one is erosion of governance. Uh, they said the debt ceiling standoff is eroding fi fiscal confidence in the U.S. government, lack of medium-term fiscal framework, and no political willingness to tackle the rising costs of Social Security and Medicare. So basically the ballooning costs that are coming up in the medium to long term. Rising general government deficits, I'm sure that <laughs> comes to no surprise. But historically, the GDP had been, uh, the deficit to GDP had been around 3.5%, but they projected to rise to 6.3% 2023, 6.4% 2024, and 6.9% 2025. This is what uh, obviously Fitch is stating here. The general government debt to rise, so the debt to GDP levels remain elevated, was around 100% 2019, rose to 122% 2020, but came back down to 113% this year, but they do expect it to go back up to 118% by 2025. Medium-term fiscal challenges that are unaddressed. Um, so it is in the coming de decade, there will be some significant challenges due to interest costs rising as a result of higher debt levels, but also higher interest rates. Exceptional strengths supports the ratings. So that is a more positive one. They said that the U.S. remains strong as a large, advanced, and well-diversified higher income economy. And the U.S. is also the world's reserve currency, which gives the government extra extraordinary financing flexibility. And the last three here, the economy, they predict that it will slip into a recession late in Q4 2023 and into Q1 of 2024, which is a contrast to what the Fed uh, said recently. They thought that a recession uh, might be avoided. So it kind of goes to show that, you know, different people will have different perspective here. Uh, the Fed tightening, obviously, they expect another 25 basis point increase this fall and say that inflation is staying stubbornly higher uh, with core PCE at 4.1% year over year. Now, for those not familiar, PCE E is the personal consumption expenditure. It's a different inflation measure than CPI, but something that the Fed pays attention to. I can do actually a segment on that in a future episode to go into more detail. ESG governance, so the U.S. ranks well in terms of governance, so specifically governance here in terms of effective rule of law, strong institution, and low levels of corruption. And for additional context, back in 2011, SNP actually downgraded the U.S. debt from AAA to AA+, and now the only major rating agency with a rating of AAA is Moody's. And uh, Warren Buffett had some comments that he uh, told CNBC Becky Quick last Thursday, he said that Berkshire bought 10 billion in U.S. Treasuries last Monday. We bought 10 billion in Treasuries this Monday, and the only question for next Monday is whether we will buy another 10 billion of three or six month Treasury bills. So that's what Warren Guy Buffett loves was betting on America. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He does. He's really. He, he doubled down on it. I mean, it's kind of, from my personal perspective, it's good to see because I have my cash mostly in uh, short-term treasury bill ETFs because they pay well and ultimately they're backed by the U.S. government and they're very liquid. So it's kind of nice to see that, uh, you know, has 
as the uh, Braden would say, the buff dog is uh, is doing something similar. It is, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting in the comparison and contrasting of you know his philosophy versus somebody like Dalio, who talks about maybe the U.S. Um, dollar losing its reserve currency stra- status within our lifetime, which I, I don't really know necessarily. Know, I mean, if you had to ask me six months ago, I might have agreed with that thesis. But seeing China's economy faltering right now is is also a big question mark, right? Like you have the quote in your notes here that there there are some things that that people shouldn't worry about, and this is one of them. And that the dollar is the re- reserve currency of the world, and everybody knows it, right? I mean, he he just loves betting on America, and you're starting to see some some people, some you know, further macro philosophy investors um, with different concepts around whether or not that could actually be the case. But I, I don't like. I'm curious to get your perspective as well. Well, your the latest data I saw is that you're seeing central banks around the world reducing slightly their treasury, U.S. treasury holdings, but it's still uh, very kind of slow, I would say, in terms of reducing it. And it's not like there's one like uh, the Chinese yuan, for example, that is really, you know, going over the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, like you said, whether it's their economy faltering or the fact that, you know, you can say what you want about the U.S. Yes, they've weaponized their currency and the SWIFT system in the past. It's nothing new. I'm sure they'll probably try and do it again, whether you agree or not. That's not the, you know, what I'm trying to say here. The main thing is that if you're another country and you know, you're seeing the U.S. weaponize that. If you're on the good side of the U.S. now, you might still tell yourself, well, if I'm not on that good side, will I remain on the good side in 5, 10, 15 years? And will the U.S. potentially weaponize that against us? So you try to diversify it a little bit. But on the other side is you diversify into what? Because if you think the U.S. can weaponize their currency, what do you think China might be able to do as a de facto, obviously, a di- dictatorship that they have over there? So it's not like there is necessarily a good good option. And I think that's, that's kind of where I stand is, I mean, we'll have to see whether there is an option that's kind of neutral and used by other countries more widely than the US dollar. But I don't think it's coming anytime soon. I, I think the hardest part for them is going to be reaching a consensus. Like if you look at BRICS, you know, you've got multiple countries that all want to usurp the US as a superpower and economics seem to be the most efficient way to do that. But what happens when they actually are looking at the opportunity to do that and they have to pick a leader and now all of a sudden they're not friends anymore. Right. And so to me, that's, that's the the biggest case against that, um, change or that shift away from the U S dollars reserve currency actually happening from a geopolitical is that eventually you're going to get down to, down to a point where BRICS won't be able to decide whose currency does get to be the the world currency. And I mean, if they come up with some sort of unified one, then we've got a whole different story, but I don't know if I necessarily see that happening either. No, no, exactly. And so it'll be interesting for those not aware, BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa. There you go. Didn't have that in my notes, so I'm glad I remembered that. Yeah, we went off script a little bit there, yeah. That's all good. And now just to finish kind of where I stand, I mean, I do agree with Warren Buffett to some extent. I don't think it's... Personally, I mean, if you're into macro and you're pretty well versed into macro, like the downgrade really doesn't 
mean all that much, in my opinion, just because you were well aware of the U.S. financial situation. And for example, if you think about Medicare and Social Security, uh, the potential issue that they'll be having in probably a decade from now, depending on who you who you listen to and what kind of data you're looking at. And one of the big issues I have with Fitch is the reasoning is comparing them to their peers. So they're comparing the U.S. to their G7 peers. But I think that's just I don't know about you, Dan, but to me, that's just fantasy land, because let's be honest, there's no comparable to the U.S. because the U.S., I mean, has the reserve currency status. And even if you compare them to a similar economy like we just talked about with China, with a similar GDP, they are far behind the U.S. when it comes to GDP per capita. And just they don't have the reserve currency. So comparing the U.S. to other G7 nation, I don't know about you, but I think that's just stupid because they ultimately, you know, they have a lot more fiscal flexibility than even a country like Canada. Yeah, I think the other piece is that, you know, I mean, the U.S. from a size perspective is is difficult to compare to any of the other G7s. Um, I mean, they're just, they're massive by comparison. And also, the pro, like you said, productivity per capita. I mean, U.S. economy is so good at squeezing um, the labor market for everything. Like, they, you just can't match the productivity per capita that, that you see in the States. Um, and the other piece that, you know, wasn't really mentioned there was that their ability to attract global talent. I mean, I don't see this is, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of these BRICS countries like don't necessarily have against the U S and a lot of the Western world. I mean, you don't see people lining up to move to all of these countries to work or to join the labor force or to become some of those, you know, to join that productivity per capita. And I think until that changes, it it is hard to imagine a world in which things shift away from what Buffett's saying. No, exactly. And a lot, like I wouldn't say all the innovation, but there's a lot of innovation happening in the U.S. compared to other countries. So that's something to to consider. And my view, I would say in terms of the actual rating, I'll be very blunt. I think they, you know, they matter because it can have an impact in terms of the rating on how easily a company or country can get financing and at which rate. But for the U.S., I don't think it's going to have a major impact. And the last thing I would say here is just I wouldn't make an investment just because of that. Whether you're looking at a company or a country to potentially buy their bonds, I'll do my own assessment because I'll be very blunt. I think the rating agencies are full of... You you know what? Because they, you know, they'll do these downgrades. I think we learned that in 2008, right? Well, 2008, and we got a reminder with SVB (laughs) earlier this year where they essentially, when everyone knew a bank bank run was happening, the rating agencies downgraded SVB. So I, I thought that was hilarious because if you're a rating agency, aren't you supposed to see these things and downgrade? Obviously, I know there's a whole business and, you know, political kind of maneuvering involved. And I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't do it during the great financial crisis. But I do take you know, these downgrades with a grain of salt, I wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't be a make or break for an investment thesis personally, as long as you do your own research and you know the company or government well. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the reality is that U.S. treasuries are still widely held by tons of countries around the world. The top one is Japan. So they have over one trillion of U.S. dollar 
uh, treasuries. Second one is mainland China with close to 900 billion. And then the UK with 700 billion. And Canada's further down the list. It's around, I think, number eight or nine at 247 billion. So it does. A U.S. default, which I don't think, you know, is happening anytime soon, uh, would have a major impact on those other countries because essentially they they hold all, like not all the debt, but they hold a significant amount of that debt. For sure. Yeah, and I think that's a big component. And I mean, a lot of these other massive countries that are jockeying for that position still hold USD securities and USD. So, um, I mean, there's speculation that, you know, they're trying to move towards a gold, move back towards a gold standard and all of that. But I just think, you know, as far as it stands right now, I think most of those economies, mo- most economies in the world have more pressing issues on the home front than solving, um, the, the you know the reserve currency status of the remainder of the world no exactly so i guess we'll just move on to the next thing which one uh, i'll let you uh you know lead the one so which segment did you want to go uh, and talk about next yeah i mean i guess we can jump to the i'll probably chat a little bit about how bonds canadian bonds um are responding to some of this these changes happening in the u.s and around the world um just because it's probably the easier jumping off point so um, cause I think it's been interesting to, to watch, um, the Canadian five year bond yield. Um, especially when US CPI was announced a couple of weeks ago, um, and it traded kind of in that 4% channel and it blew off a little bit today, today being Tuesday, August 8th when we're recording. Um, but you know, typically mortgages are priced based off of these Canada five year bond yields. Um, and they, they seem to be responding just as much to U.S. news as they are to Canadian news. And and I think this is basically, from my perspective, it's the market assuming the Bank of Canada will have to keep matching the Fed. Otherwise, we'll start importing inflation. And so imported inflation would be, you know, when we talk about that settlement currency that we were just talking about or the, the reserve currency, you know, the, this is what most um, international trade is paid in, right? And so... Um, if we're paying for international trade in U.S. dollars, buying goods to bring into Canada in U.S. dollars, and Canada devalues their currency too much, um, then or by by not hiking um, or by not matching the Fed, if they deviate too much from the Fed, then basically the Canadian dollar becomes a less compelling investment because it has a lower yield. It's earning a lower interest rate. And then if we devalue against the U.S. dollar, now all of a sudden you're importing inflation and. Um, it becomes more expensive to buy goods since we buy goods in U.S. dollars. And that would become an inflationary effect. Um, and on the last U.S. CPI report, the Canadian five-year bond yield jumped to 4% range during that day. Um, and and it's, it's worth noting here that five-year bond yields are kind of the pricing mechanism for mortgage rates. Um, I can get into that a little bit. So, because it, it's interesting to get an understanding for how the Bank of Canada can even can or can't game the the system on the housing market and and all uh, credit dependent you know um, investments, which is basically everything. Um, anything you want to add there before I jump into how bonds impact? Well, I wanted your take on this. Yeah, I wanted your take on this. So the the Bank of Canada, I kind of know where you're going to go with it, but uh, just to be facetious a little bit. So um, do you agree with the Bank of Canada that, uh, you know, housing has been resilient in Canada uh, despite those uh, aggressive rate hikes? And they've it's been uh, more resilient, I think, than they thought. It's interesting. I mean... The data, like it's, there's this book called How to Lie with Statistics. I represent, I, re- I uh, <laughs> reference it a lot on the, um, 
on on our podcast but you know they i think the challenge is that you you know you're looking at a housing market from january to may that did exceptionally well it was ripping right um but typically does seasonally and then the, the other part is if you're looking at national statistics or the hpi which is a house price index none of these are really like good absolute um, ways to measure the performance of a housing market. And and because 60% of the transaction volume, dollar volume of, of real estate is traded in the greater golden horseshoe, um, and like 70% of it is in the province of Ontario, the national average gets skewed so massively. And the na- these national indexes get skewed so massively. And Toronto, I mean, it blew off really hard last year. It, it had a very forward-looking drop as soon as rate hikes started biggest house price drop in history year on a year over year basis. And it, obviously it was going to recoil a little bit and recover in the spring market of this year. And it did. And now it's rolling over again um, after they um, resumed rate hikes or hit the unpause button. Um, and so I, I would, I would never have said that um, the market was being resilient. I mean, it, it wasn't, it stopped falling. And so that was, um, and I, th- and, and I guess it was going up in, in, in uncertain terms, but if, if you seasonally adjusted it, the market grew about, uh, 1%, which adjusted for inflation, uh, you know, was, is, was a negative real growth. So I don't think it did, but I just think they're, I think that they've been using the wrong data points in a lot of cases the whole time. Um, and this, this is probably just a very easy indication of it for me to explain because I, I know real estate data exceptionally well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they had, you know, according to the model they're using, whichever model they're using, they had projected a steeper drop in prices if they had gone that aggressively. And it's been, you know, not as high as they anticipated. Uh, you know, I listen to you guys as much as I can with, uh, you know, you and Nick on the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I listen to other people that are pretty well versed and uh, I've seen a lot of data, not as much as you, but... But one thing I notice is the volume and the inventory level and on the market is just extremely low, right? So um, obviously, if you have a really short supply, even if there's not that much demand, I mean, there's probably just enough demand to keep the prices or keep a certain floor to those prices uh, just because there is a lot less volume available. Like people are just not moving. Uh, they're not putting their homes for sale. It's easy. It's hard to qualify for a bigger home. If you're, you know, like us, for example, me and my wife, we'd be interested in moving in something bigger, but we'll probably have to stay here just because I'm not sure we'd qualify at the uh, the current rates and even if we did I'm not sure if we would want uh, that high of a mortgage payment because then we you know it would just uh, kind of strap Be us under yeah exactly house poor that's the term I was uh, was looking for yeah. but yeah that's kind of the perception I have is it's been kind of artificially staying high just because of the current Meyer kid dynamics. But as we see more and more people that uh, have to renew, whether they're on fixed mortgages that had really low rates and they have to renew at potentially double the rate, if not more. And then you have those variable mortgages as the OSFI starts clamping down on those, um, all this impact and the variable mortgages that are, I guess, getting interest added to their principal. I mean, something's got to give. I don't know when, but it feels like it's just a ticking time bomb or there's cracks in the foundation and 
you'll just need one event, one catalyst, and things might get pretty ugly in the housing market. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the um, the demand destruction element. I mean, I, I think one of the um, the challenges there is also like. I, I think that they're expecting things to change a little bit too quickly. Like, I, I just don't think they're respecting the lag at all. Um, and, you know, they've just started acknowledging the lag in their most recent press releases on the hikes. I mean, we should just see, be seeing the impacts of the first rate hike now. And and one of the big reasons for this is people only need to service debt on a monthly basis. So in order to, you know, people only have to pay their mortgage once a month. And so in order for the the impact to really be felt and to materialize, you need time under tension. You need to be people to be absorbing these rates um, over and over. Um, the other place, or sorry, the other piece of it is, is that, you know, the Bank of Canada isn't actually, they can't destroy demand because nobody's using the variable interest rate right now to buy houses. Everybody is using fixed rates because fixed rates are priced better. And so you would assume consumers are rational. And so they're going to want to use the the cheaper rate because it'll qualify them for more, I, I guess, for a greater, greater buying power. And it's cheaper. It's just, you know, it's the better, more economically sensible thing to do. And the Bank of Canada has no control over the fixed rate, really. You know, the bond yield kind of controls that. Uh, the Bank of Canada, or sorry, so the, the bond yield, typically, basically, fixed mortgages are Government of Canada, five-year bond yield plus 2%. You typically hear GOC plus 2%, um, whereas variable is prime plus or prime minus, you know, 90 bips. Um, and prime is a function of the Bank of Canada's overnight rate. Um, and I can explain that whole system why, but basically it's basically a replacement factor. So, um, they're the yeah. same, same duration, right? So Canada five year, um, is, uh, when you take out a fixed year mortgage, you're essentially borrowing money from a lender. The lender needs to secure those funds to lend you. So one of the ways that they would do that is by purchasing bonds, which are issued by governments or corps. And the yield on that bond is the return an investor receives from holding the bond. So if they, if they can get a five-year bond from the government or they can give, or they could, their alternative investment would be to make money lending that money to you. And you are, you know, a little bit riskier than the government, uh, a little bit less likely to, to service that, that loan than the government. They're going to apply a risk premium of about 2%. Um, so when, when the five-year bond increases, investors demand higher returns from bonds. So lenders, in order to attract investors, and these are your banks, you guys talk about bank stocks a lot and investors, they may need to offer higher interest rates to, to do that. And as a result, they might um, increase the rates they charge on fixed rate mortgages to align with the higher yields in bonds. Um, the inverse is true for, uh, for lower yields. And so um, the Bank of Canada, I mean... During the during the pandemic, sixty over sixty percent of people um, were buying with variable rate mortgages because they were so cheap. And so, if the Bank of Canada keeps cranking that up, they're actually gaming the supply side of the equation of the housing market, not the demand side, because they would actually be putting more and more financial stress on people and pushing more and more people out of their houses, and or not out of their houses. Maybe it's a lot of investors and stuff like that, but they're basically pushing more and more people to have to sell, to put into a position of financial stress where they have to sell. And so they can really only control the supply side right now. And the bond market is in control of the demand side. Yeah. And you can also make a case that are crushing part of the other supply side by making it harder for builders to 
go ahead and build those homes, right? Because if there's higher rates, yeah. then, um, you know, the margin just becomes slimmer, slimmer for builder. I mean, I know it's only anecdotal, but around me, there's tons of of lots that were bought clearly to build apartment complexes and uh they've had these notice in ottawa you have like a i guess a, a notice with the uh zoning department that you have to put where people put their comments in and so on and usually you know you'd see the sign up for a few months and then comments would be in and then so a few uh, you know amount of months later the construction would start while i've seen an increasing amount of these signs that have been up for like two three four years now so these projects that are clearly were probably going to go ahead when interest rates were lower and then interest rate has gone up and it just doesn't make any sense for the the builder the developer yeah for sure i think that and um you know, I mean, policy, the policy environment has, has proven to become almost very inflationary or creating a lot of friction in the housing market by stif- like squandering supply in that um, monetary policy side, but also, you know, in the legislative side. And then you also have, I mean, we have record population growth for the last year. You know, we have a record population growth and we're going to see it again this year, right? A million, million people um, coming to Canada. And so that's more and more demand on the on the quantity side it's just the buying power side that becomes the question mark no exactly and it impacts you know just to get back obviously to more like investing in stocks i have this little graphic here that i'll show for our patreon uh, audience and essentially you know bond have fared pretty poorly and i've been i was talking about that in 2000 2000 uh, sorry in 2020 2021 um because you know a lot of the things you saw there was still having a portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bond, the classic 60-40s. And I wanted to show how poorly these bond funds have actually performed. And I just took, you know, I compared four, so two bond funds and two index fund. So I took the XIU, the iShares SNPTSX ETFs to track the Canadian equities, SPY, so the SPDR SNP. 500 ETF to track the US S&P 500, XBB, which is the iShares Core Canadian Universe Bond Index ETF, primarily government bonds, but there's also a little bit of corporate in there. Same thing for AGG, which is the iShares Core US Aggregate Bond ETF. And uh, needless to say, since the rate hiking cycle from central banks in early 2022, um, the bond funds have performed really poorly. So the two bond funds are down 11 and 12 percent and then you have the spy and xiu that are almost flat not quite so the spy is down four percent and the xiu for the tsx is pretty much flat and these are total returns so they include dividends or payouts Um, and that's something important because we talk about higher yields and you hear a lot in mainstream media how it's great for retirees that they can get additional kind of income from fixed income whether it's gic's whether Uh, It's purchasing government bonds straight out right now. But I think we tend to forget about those retirees that had bonds um, or pension plans or whatever you want to look.
look at that have bonds before the rate hiking cycle happen. And those bonds, depending on the duration, are still quite underwater. And especially those bond funds for retirees, if they're forced to sell these to be able to get income for, you know, their everyday life, well, these were tet typically seen as safe so something to stabilize your portfolio lower volatility and we've actually seen the opposite happen the last couple of years uh, so i think that's really important for people to to remember because it's it's probably hurting a lot of people that are retired that were banking on those bond funds to hold in value of those bonds and then if they can't hold them to maturity uh, they will be stuck and getting less than they probably had planned for sure should we try and wrap this one up with both of our thoughts on inflation here? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. So I guess the big question is, and, and this is a discussion that I wanted to have with you and I was curious to get your take. You know, everybody seems to be cheering because inflation in Canada is at 2.8. Actually, I found that both governments <laughs> celebrated that they had the lowest inflation in the in the G7. Uh, Canada tweeted the the... Liberal Party has tweeted twice um, now that, that we have the lowest in the G7 because they're using CPI trim against the US. Yeah. CP, the US doesn't have a CPI trim. Um, and then uh, the US stated that they have the lowest uh, CPI in, in, the, in the G7 at 3% and they show Canada on the same chart. Uh, and I'm assuming they're using core CPI, which is a greater comparable to US CPI. <laughs> uh, and our, our yeah. core is still over... Three point, I think it's three point two or three point four, um, and core has been very sticky. Um, anyway, I think that both of these governments might end up um, becoming a classic example of celebrating too early. Like you know when you see those meme, those memes of like uh, a cyclist like cheering and then they fall before they cross the finish line or somebody put throws their hands up and then the other racer comes and beats them like it just feels like that could happen because i think they're they're really missing um the the effect the base effect and um it's it's especially funny you know from a political commentary perspective and i try not to get into politics too much but one of the things that's important in investing is acknowledging the existence of this thing called the political business cycle um and this comes from Keynes, i think or friedman um he acknowledges that basically you get parties shifting or, or power apart, um, in parties shifting back and forth between um, uh, parties who create inflation. So typically your left parties are the ones who are, are creating inflation by by uh, growing the job market. Their goal really is to support the job market, support employment, make sure everybody's getting jobs. And that's an inflationary effect. And then you get these um, parties on the right that are come in as inflation fighters. And really, you can see for the first time in our lifetime, I think that conversation really swinging back and forth. And uh, anyway, the, the the other piece is that I think that there's really or ignoring the base effect. Um, and I think BMO just recently acknowledged this in, in one of their articles um, and StatCan acknowledges it as well in... Um, in their most recent CPI print, this is the funniest part, is that they literally show how base effects have kind of driven um, cost declines in, um, especially in the gasoline thing. And they actually show a, uh, a chart where it basically shows how, because CPI and like the, the change really ramped up during last summer, there's like a huge hump in the, all of these price curves. And as you're climbing up that hump, CPI is getting worse and worse and worse. And then as you get to the other side of it, it gets better and better and better. And so we're going to go through that period. CPI could look good probably for the next maybe one or two prints. And then as you get towards the end of the year, 
where you're back at the bottom of that that growth curve and looking at growth uh, or increases since since then when it was basically stagnant towards the end of last year nothing was really going up in value then you're going to end up with a new comparison and and a new a new base effect and we'll actually get to a point where CPI could be could be higher and a lot of people are saying that CPI is bottomed i think the only wrench and this is something that you and i have discussed the only wrench that could be thrown in that is if we hit a recession which I think you know recession has a hundred percent success rate of getting inflation down to the neutral range. Yeah, it also depends, I guess, how severe recession. But there's also you know if something actually breaks, if there's some major banks that start getting into trouble, for example. And I pulled up, I did some, did a few graphs just for fun. So I did uh, when I was preparing for the episode. So one of the graphics is basically similar to what Stats has done, but I actually added energy because energy includes gasoline and both. Obviously, you know if energy is a bigger component and gasoline is kind of a sub component of that but the graphic i have up clearly shows kind of a headline inflation trickling down as the cpi energy component gasoline component kind of trends down and you can also see it with wti crude right so the price of oil um if you look at when the price of oil peaked last year around kind of june july actually yeah around june july of last year so it peaked around 120 and then it kind of started going down and now it's starting to go back up a little bit so you see that trend really aligns with the cpi at least the, the headline number going down and then i you know did a little table as well and you don't have to go into too much detail but you clearly see as the headline cpi number actually at its highest point it was because energy was up close to 39 percent and gasoline on its own was close to 55 percent increase and then going back to march of 2023 and recent months have been similar i didn't go as far out because i thought it showed pretty clearly the uh the trend here as you go to march 2013 energy was down seven percent and gasoline was down 14 percent and obviously headline cpi was 4.3 percent so you see that base effect that you're talking about how big of an impact and i do wonder like honestly uh, in terms of you know the the politicians not to get into politics too much because they they all do the same shit right they regardless yeah, of whatever sure. party like they'll try to swing things to make themselves look better um you know if inflation was high i'm sure you know governments would be blaming that on the previous uh government and so on but you do wonder if you know they fully understand the economic data on the one hand and how quickly it can change because you know i don't know when the next federal election is i guess that you know would be what year and a half two years it's a minority 25 in canada i think yeah at 25, 25 is, okay. is how long they agreed on the coalition, I think, with um Okay, so and, yeah, I guess it could be party. potentially, yeah, a bit before that, depending if it falls through or not between the NDP and the Liberal. Mm -hmm. But it just kind of shows like, I don't know whether it's their misunderstanding or whether they need a kind of crash course in PR and maybe under promise over deliver <laughs> type of deal. It's just like, I just don't see any upside with them kind of celebrating this headline inflation, I especially agree. right now when food, food is elevated, housing remains elevated, which are, you know, for 
the vast majority of people, this is where most of their money goes towards in one single month. Obviously, the richer you are, the smaller component of your budget typically that will be. And it's, I don't know, I find that a bit confusing because they're celebrating that, yet I'm sure if you polled a thousand people, if they feel like they're in a better financial situation right now than they were two, three, four years ago, I'm going to say that most people will say no. So it just, it's just a little confusing, I'll be honest. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a little bit of a, uh, a lack of understanding probably. And then it's also just, I mean, I think they're trying to, I think they've realized that, um, and, and again, this is more of a reflection of the political business cycle and, and how politics and economics become intertwined during these inflationary cycles and election cycles rather than a commentary on politics in general. But I think that, you know, politicians are starting to realize that that's the, that's the conversation right now. That's the most important issue to voters. And so they're, they're trying to create their own narrative around it and, and join, not even create a narrative, but join the conversation. And, th- and that's the best way I think that they, that they both thought of um, to do it was, you know, to, to talk about how they've, what they've done to try and take credit for everything that monetary policy has done <laughs> in, you know, getting inflation to where it needs to be. It'll be interesting to see as well, because I think, yeah, you do have two elections basically that are coming down the pipe in the U.S. and Canada in in likely not an exceptionally good economic time. Like I don't I don't necessarily see a uh, you know, you know, you saw the Moody suggestion that we'll see a recession next year. I would agree with that. I don't see it being resolved or in a in a steep recovery phase by the time either of these elections take place. And so. I think it's really an uphill battle for politicians. And I think that this is why you start to see people lean towards those, those, the alternative politicians who are the ones who come in as these, these individuals fighting the good fight on the, on the economics. And it's worth just thinking about that from um, an economic thesis perspective or an investment thesis perspective. The other, if if you're looking for a really good read, I don't know if you've read the new fourth turning book, but it just came out um, from Neil Howe, but it's basically a follow up to the original fourth turning. I want to. I heard a great interview on another podcast with, I think it was Neil that was on there, uh, starting to get yeah, up there. Yeah, it was there. just he him who a- wrote it. He's an older guy now, for sure. But yeah, it's just, he, yeah. he, the other author, I don't know if he's passed away or what, but he's he didn't write the second book. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I know I was wondering, but it was just so fascinating to... Uh, to hear him talk, but um, yeah, it's just, it just, I find it a little confusing and sometimes just what uh, uh, politicians will put out there, but even central banks, right? If we kind of go back and it's just, it's just a very strange situation because you have on the one hand governments who, you know, want to spend because they want to do infrastructure project, there's healthcare, there's all these different things, right? They want to spend on and the more spending they do, well, it kind of counteracts what the central banks are trying to do with rising interest rates. So yeah. you, it, it's just a very strange situation when people kind of stop and think about it. On the one hand, you have a lot of spending from governments. And then on the other hand, you have central banks that are almost like trying to put the brakes on. So one is kind of counteracting the other one. And what's really interesting with central banks, I think that we're seeing right now is, and you referred to that earlier, is I think they just don't know what the lag effect will be and i think it just shows the reality of there's never been rate increases that were this quick historically 
and they may have had a sort of model showing that there's a lag effect of 12 to 18 months for interest rate hikes but i think there's a very di big difference between hiking you know once or twice 25 basis point and then there's a lag effect of 12 to 18 months after that versus you know we went to what basically zero to five five percent yeah. and what like uh 15 months, 16 months or so. Yeah, I mean, I think if you yeah. if you look at like magnitude's tough because if you look at the overnight rate, like magnitude seems almost infinite, right? Like I think you've seen a 2000% increase or 20,000 sorry, 20,000% increase in in the overnight rate, but um so like a 20xing from 0.25 to 5, I guess we're at now. But but if you look at prime, which is maybe better, right? Cuz that's yeah. really more reflective of what the borrowing environment is. Prime prime basically tripled, which is is similar to what it did in the 90s um but it but in the 90s it tripled over several years rather than in a year um and so it is i agree with you i think and and i've spoken with a lot of economists on this and a lot of them are worried that they're that we've already seen a massive overshot and to continue to keep tightening and keep cranking it up it could be reckless i guess we're going to find out the hard way shortly um but you know i mean ben tal says it best i think that um you know the alternative is if 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 the, if the Fed's right and if if other central banks are right that we're not going to see a recession in any of these countries, then the reason we're not seeing a recession is because we have persistent inflation. And I think we as investors and as individuals who you know have to go and consume things need to ask ourselves, would we rather have a recession or would we rather have inflation? And Ben Tao says that the the central bank would choose a recession every single time if they're given that choice, right? And so we don't like the last time the Economist did a great podcast on this, but the last time that we dealt with a um, a um, inflationary regime was like in like the seventies, right, late seventies. So we don't really like. It, it, I don't even know if we know, have policy tools left anymore to 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 deal with that. Um, the last piece I'll leave with, and then we can probably wrap up, is I think that the M M1 money supply in the state seems to be a pretty efficient at getting some of that out of the market. So, I mean, if they're able to get all of that excess cash out, it, you know, maybe they're on to something down there. And, and, and hopefully we can, we can kind of follow the same path here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I find it really fascinating because you can listen to five different really smart people on the subject and they'll probably have five different point of views on where everything is going maybe some will be totally. similar to the other but um you know i've heard people saying that we're gonna enter you know um pretty you know we're gonna enter deflation the next like couple of years or so i've seen people that mention that we'll probably you know have a decade long of higher than usual inflation so that you know the two to three percent range at the um, I guess the central banks in Canada, U.S., and I think the major kind of Western central banks have um, is not really achievable. And then comes into the question, are we should we just have a new target? Because at the end of the day, I mean, they I think it was. Do you know which country? I think it was New Zealand that first came up with that two percent target range. Do you know how that came about? I don't. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot right now. Up. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I think it may I, have I actually been. actually have no idea. Okay, yeah, I think it may have been New Zealand uh, uh, probably 20, 25 years ago. I could be wrong, and people feel free to to correct me, but it just makes you wonder uh, why why that 2% range, why it's so important. Maybe it makes more sense now having it around 3 
3%, say 3 to 4%, whatever it is, 2.5 to 3.5, where maybe that's the target and then central banks can adjust accordingly and maybe interest rates can, you know, actually level off and not keep increasing if that's the direction they want to go. Yeah, it's an interesting insight. I think uh, like average uh, inflation in Canada during the observation period of like the past hundred years is is like three point eight percent. It's like close to four percent. So I don't know why they'd be trying to calibrate down from that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, at the end of the day, I think there's just a lot of forces at play, and uh, I guess uh, we'll probably wrap it up on that point. It was. Uh, uh, pretty fun. It was really fun actually having you here, Dan. A uh, little change from Braden, which uh, thank you for stepping in. It was very last minute, so that's why we decided to do a more macro show. Uh, I'm sure people are getting used to having you on at this point, but um, for those not aware, where can they uh, find you on Twitter? Um, I, I also heard that you have a podcast as well. Do you want to tell us how they can find it? Yeah, I got a decent podcast. Uh, it's on this network. If you're on your podcast platform, just search the Canadian Real Estate Investor. My last name is Foch. My first name is Daniel. If you Google those, typically uh, you can find me pretty easily. Yeah, exactly. And on Twitter, where, what's your Twitter again? You're pretty uh, yeah, active there. Daniel under, underscore Foch, yeah. Okay, well, that's great. Thanks a lot. And then on everything else, it's just Daniel Foch. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Dan, for uh, for coming in and uh, substituting for Brayden. And pleasure. we'll be back uh, for uh, Brayden. Will be back next week, so uh, not to worry. Uh, he's not gone. He'll uh, he'll be back for a regular episode next week. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Brayden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.